Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to another episode of the Chase the Vase podcast, season three. I am here with Michael Van Meter. Man, this guy's legendary. 30 years of military, correction, police, FBI. Mike, like, do, have they made a movie after you yet? No, but they should. I think they should. I think they should. I know that you were on a set, right? You, you actually were like a, an extra in a movie? Yeah, it, I don't think it was that big of a deal, though. I just stood in the back. I tell my wife, I say, they want to be just to stand in the back and be pretty. That was it. How'd that work? Did you look good? No, probably not. I look old and I was cold and wet. It's it, January in Washington, D.C. It was wet and cold. Well, good, man. So you're a professional career. You were in the Navy. You were a helicopter pilot. You served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Correct. Yeah. After eight years in the military, you left. Then you kind of went to the police DOC for a little while. And then you ended up at the FBI. Yeah, correct. What was that transition like? Because I know that a lot of guys, when they get in the PD or military, their goal is to get to federal agency. Was that your goal all along? Let me back up a little bit. I did spend time in the Navy and, you know, eight years as a, as a helicopter pilot, like you mentioned. And I loved it. Yeah, I love flying in uh, helicopters. You know what? Believe it or not, Brock, it was actually, flying was not even my goal. It's kind of a long, long story. I won't bore you with it. But when I went to college, I was in uh, Navy ROTC and Marine Corps. If you're in ROTC and you went to the Marine Corps, you go into Navy ROTC. I believe it or not, I wanted to be an infantry officer. That was my goal, but I met a woman in ROTC, and that actually that woman is my wife to this day, but we started dating. She was in Navy ROTC, and the two branches of the service, they're different branches, even though it's in the Department of the Navy. And when they figured out that she and I were going to be a thing, we were going to get married, I got pulled aside, and they said, look, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to be in the Marine Corps, or you're, you're going to be divorced, but you're not, you're not going to be both. Meanwhile, they made everybody back in the 80s, uh, they made everybody redo, take the flight exam because they were redoing it and they wanted to get a baseline. Turns out I had done pretty well on it. And they said, hey, look, your wife's going to go aviation maintenance officer in the Navy, which is what she ultimately did. Would you consider flying in the Navy? Because as it turns out, they said, look, we can get you a, a flight spot in the Navy and then she'll be aviation maintenance and we can keep you guys together. So I flew in the Navy. I uh, did that. But I have to say that growing up, if you know my whole history. I wanted to be a cop ever since I wanted to, you know, since I was little. I didn't grow up wanting to be a pilot. I grew up wanting to be a cop. So I knew that when I went into the Navy, that wasn't going to be forever. My goal all along was to go into law enforcement. And so that's where that came from. That That's where that back. Because people are like, why didn't you just keep flying? Or why didn't you go to the airlines? It was, well, that, that just wasn't my goal. When I was in the police department, our guys that were in the helicopter, like our helicopter unit, they were, that was the most coveted spot. I don't know, in the agency you work, did you have a helicopter division? The FBI does have helicopters down at the hostage rescue team, which is in, which is in Quantico. And so the team has helicopters. And there's a couple of offices in the FBI, New York and Miami. I, I don't think there's others. I, I don't recall if there were. Now, my field time was spent in Dallas, Texas. We did not have helicopters out there, but we did have Cessnas. And so I, I am also fixed wing rated as well. I flew part-time and a little bit full-time when I was out there in Dallas, but I never flew helicopters again after I left the Navy. I mean, is it like what we see on TV? Is it that scary? And I mean, you were in active battle, right? Well, no, we, we never went. What I did in, in the Navy, 
the helicopter I flew was anti-submarine warfare. And, you know, of course, during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know, the Iraqis didn't have any submarines. They didn't have a Navy to speak of. And so what we were doing in the battle group, our role was as they, they were sending in strikes into the desert, then what we were doing is we were doing either seaborne search and rescue and then some inland search and rescue. And so I would say the combat, the real dangerous combat missions were coming from the jets that were, were flying in, and then we were doing any, any search and rescue. Okay. But to answer your question, is it dangerous? Flying in the Navy is dangerous. And I flew off of the back of small ships, frigates and destroyers, which is, you know, the basketball court that you have in front of your house. Our, our landing platform on the ship is not a whole lot bigger than that. So you wanted to become a cop. So you originally became a cop, then went to DOC, then went to the FBI. No. Uh, so what happened was... So in the Navy, you do sea tours and, and shore tours. You rotate back and forth. And back in those days, uh, women weren't really on ships the way that they, they are today. And so to get credit for a sea tour, women had to go on go to remote duty locations. And so my wife and I were opposite rotations. So they sent her over to Iceland, Kefavik, Iceland. They sent me with her. They said, that's going to be your wife's. You know, I had done my sea tour. And so now um, she was doing her sea tour and I, and I went with her. Now, the only reason why I say that is I'm in Keflavik, Iceland. Now, you got to remember it's early 90s at this point. So we didn't have the internet, didn't have cell phones, we didn't have all the technology that you have now. So I knew that after that tour, I was going to be leaving the Navy, but I was in Iceland. And we found out at some point she was coming back to the Washington, D.C. area for her next tour because she ended up staying in the Navy. And so we knew where we were going and I knew I was getting out. But the, you physically, in those days, had to apply. I mean, like you had to go to a police department, ask for an application, fill it out, and go back, okay? But I'm in Iceland. So I was up there, and they had what's called the rotator. So from Norfolk, Virginia, they every weekend they would have a plane that would fly to Iceland, or fly from Iceland to the U.S., rather, and then fly back to Iceland on Sunday evening. And I would do that. So I would come in on the weekend, rent a car, go all over the East Coast of the United States, put it, do applications, and then the next week followed up with, you know, I do an interview here, do a psychological evaluation over there, fill, take a written test over here. And that this was my life for about almost two years, just flying back and forth doing that. At that time, I knew, because by then I'd already had a master's degree. So I knew that I wanted to go in law enforcement. And my goal, like you mentioned, was to go into federal law enforcement, but I'm applying to everybody. So I'd applied to the marshals, DEA, NCIS, which wasn't Hiring, that was actually my first choice coming out of the Navy, but they weren't hiring. And, you know, when you're in the military, you have what's called a home of record. And, you know, because you're moving around. So my home record was Tampa, Florida, because that's where I, I grew up. And so when I took the phase one exam for the FBI, I had to fly from Iceland to Norfolk, Virginia, rent a car, drove all the way to Tampa, took the written exam, drove all the way back to Virginia, got on a plane and went back to Iceland. That was my life. So what I'm really excited about, I know that you're in recovery. You have 10 years of recovery from alcohol. What I'm really excited about is, is when you became, when you got into the FBI, I mean, we can talk cop stories all day, but I want to get in the meat and potatoes of your story, really. So you can add some hope, man, some strength to people who are going through it right now. We're both in recovery, both been in law enforcement, both experienced probably some PTSD, just going through it. So I know that you became an instructor. You created a course in the FBI titled Leading At-Risk Employees, which focuses on addiction and PTSD and suicide. The same things that we are trying to, to handle right now in our, in our government, in our communities. 
So tell me what your focus was. Like, what was your angle? What are you seeing? How is it transcribed to all of us going through it? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. And let me just kind of lead into how this, because that whole course was built out of my personal experience, actually. So as you mentioned, you know, in my career, I started out corrections, actually. And then while I was waiting corrections, then went into the police department. So I was in the Washington, D.C. police department, then went into the FBI. And, you know, maybe some other time we can go through the, the nit and gritty of how the progression of the addiction happened in my case. Oh, oh no, we need to hear it. I, w- I want to know how it happened. You, you want me to kind of lead, you know, through the drinking and, and then get into the course? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to go through all the, the nitty gritty, but just give us a baseline. Well, I would say that in my case, what your listeners need to understand, and in my podcast, Recovery is Possible, has a lot of episodes that talk, I talk about progression and the disease model and all those kinds of things. And understand that in my case, I had, I definitely had the genetic predisposition towards it. And that, you know, that came from, you know, my family, my mom suffered from alcoholism, her parents did. It was there. It was definitely there. It was in the genes. Yeah, the genes. But you have to have a combination of the genes and then you have to have the environment, right? Genes and environment. So the two, because you can have the genes for alcoholism, but if you're never exposed to alcohol, then it's never going to start that progression. So, you know, and you have examples of that. You can look at in the United States that prior to Europeans coming to mainland US, American Indians had no issues with alcohol. Europeans bring alcohol and, you know, you go to reservations around the country and the alcoholism rate is, you know, 99% or higher. So statistically, if you just look at the, you know, do an analysis of that, you know that there's a genetic preloading. Now, in my case, I had that. Where I grew up, I grew up in the Tampa Bay area, like I mentioned. It was a retirement community. And in the late 70s and early 80s, when I was growing up, just about every adult man I knew had been in the Depression and they had been in at least one more. I didn't actually know an adult male that had not been in the military. They all had because everybody had been drafted back then. It was World War. And and so, you know, you got to understand back in those days, it was just very different. To them, when you were 15, 16 years old, you were a grown man. You know, they didn't have safe spaces. They didn't have, you know, a lot of these guys were lying about their age and going over to Europe or over into the Pacific and, and fighting, and they grew up very fast. They also grew up in the Depression. And so it was not uncommon to grow up in that environment. And, you know, when you hit 15 years old, they're like, you know, hey, do you want a beer? Do you want a shot of whiskey? Because, you know, they were fighting in the war when they were your age. So I grew up with that. It was not uncommon. Alcohol was not something. It was something that people did. Not a big deal. So I started drinking at a very, very uh, young age. I drank a lot, you know, throughout high school. I was in high school from 80 to 84. So, you know, those are the days where you could just be blackout drunk driving home and the sheriff's deputy pulls you over and it's like, you know, where are you going, boy? <laughs> I live right there. Well, you better get your butt home. You know, well, those days are over, but that's the way it was. I look back now and if my kids drank the way that I did in high school, I, I'd be horrified, but that's just the way it was. So I go to go off to college, go to the University of Florida, part, big party school. And, you know, I participated in that big, big, big party time. Went into the Navy, which is the military in general, but the Navy and naval aviation in particular, really at that time prided itself in drinking. So, you know, for me, Brock, though, I remember the moment and and those that suffer from alcohol. And I never did ask you, is alcohol your, what are you in recovery for? Opioids. Opioids. Okay. Well, and I think it, it may be true with people with opioid addiction as well, but certainly with alcoholics, it's like you remember the moment, like you remember the moment it's like, you know, that is my answer to everything, right? So now, Brock, we were talking about genetic preloading. We're talking about environment. And then we start talking about the wanting wanting to escape. And I think that that's kind of like the trigger point when 
you stop drinking because it's enjoyable and you start drinking because it becomes an answer or a solution to something, right? And for me, that moment was while I was in Iceland, actually, uh, the guy that lived next to me, I was in the junior officer housing and the guy next to me, he was a, a Marine. And I remember him inviting my wife and I over to his house. And the thing about him was he was a, he was kind of a classy sort of well-read intellectual kind of guy. And along with that, he liked to drink wine. Now, I got to mention, I had never had wine prior to meeting this guy. You know, I was always taught that men drank whiskey and beer and women drank wine. I mean, no offense, ladies, <laughs> you're listening. That's just the way that it was. Got to remember, this is a very type A masculine type of environment that, that I was working in. Actually, my whole career was that. But, you know, I go over to this guy's house and he's serving wine at, at dinner and it was red wine. It turned out to be a Cabernet and I, and I drank it. And there was something about it. And those of you that are going to, if you're looking for a PhD thesis to work on, maybe you can work on what is the biochemistry in red wine that causes this unique feeling. Because I've been to probably a thousand plus AA meetings and I've lost track of how many people have said, you know, my drink of choice at the end of my drinking was red wine. You hear it, never white rosé. It's always red. I don't know why, but I drink this and it was Brock. I tell you, it was like, the feeling. It was like a different buzz. It was like this mellow feeling I'd never experienced before. And from that moment, that was my drink of choice. Now, that didn't go away. So I get out of the Navy. And I think when I talk about conditions, you know, things that happen in your life where you're trying to escape, I think at that point, that was the first time I started feeling uncertain about my future. You know, I mentioned I'm on a rock up in Iceland. The sun's not coming up half the year. I'm flying back and forth to the United States, not getting any bites on jobs, by the way. And, and here I am, I know the minute I step back on U.S. soil, I'm getting out of the Navy, so I'm unemployed. I don't know if my future is going to be, and just like this, like I don't know what's going to happen, right? So all this uncertainty, but I noticed looking back, you know, this is sort of a postmortem of my life, I realized that was where the drinking started escalating to the point to where my wife would question it. You know, if you compare that drinking then to the drinking at the end, it really wasn't that much, but that was when, you know, it was being noticed. So anyway, fast forward, I end up back in the States, did a very short stint in corrections. I knew that that was just going to be temporary. I knew that I was going to go from that to a police department. I just took the first job because I didn't want to be unemployed. But I got to tell you, we'll do a podcast maybe some other time on corrections. Loved it. Learned a lot. Hard, hard, hard work, guys. Uh, but didn't do that for long. Then I went to the Metropolitan Police Department. Now, that's really where alcohol became sort of like a tool that I was using. And, and the reason for that is those of you, and I know, Brock, that you know this, but you know, for the listeners that aren't in law enforcement, big city police department, you know, Washington, D.C., in the mid-90s, we were the homicide capital of the world, not, not just the United States, the world. D.C. is only 10 square miles, right? And we were having more homicides than you know, any of the other major cities, just a very high-speed place. Every day that you go to work is a 100% adrenaline rush. Imagine what that does to your system every single day. Now, Factor that in with you're working evenings, midnights, you're, you're rotating your schedules. So you're working all night, but you're going to court during the day. Then you're leaving court and going back to work. So just imagine, you know, you're not eating properly. You're not certainly not sleeping properly. All these different things and what that does to your system. And so it's not like you can do man with gun, man with gun, man with knife, man with gun, traffic stop, foot chase, and then go home and say, hey, honey, I hope you had a good day at work today. Kiss, kiss, lights out, good night. It doesn't work that way. Your system just does not come off of that very well. So what I learned or what I believed worked at the time was, hey, 
starting to drink kind of takes that edge off. And I talk to hundreds and hundreds of cops now, and they always say that alcohol helps me sleep at night. Absolutely not true, but everybody does that. And that's what I was doing. But that was where it started. You know, that's that's where. Yeah, that is not true, people. Where do you think that comfort, because alcohol is almost like a comfort food for a lot of alcoholics, right? It gives them that ability to, it feels like their uh, ability to cope has increased, their ability to sleep. But I mean, we know that it's not the facts, but that's what we tell ourselves in our brain. Where do you think that came from? Well, I think it's been cultural in law enforcement. It's definitely cultural. You know, you'd hear it from the older cops. You know, if you say, hey, man, I'm just, man, I'm really struggling. I'm tired. I'm not sleeping well. We need to drink some more. Or if you walk up on a scene where you see a dead baby or you were just in a shooting or you were in a foot chase, you know, at the end of the, you know, at the end of the night, I don't know about your department, but it was not uncommon at all for guys to start drinking in the back parking lot before they headed out. It's sort of ingrained in the culture, you know, even in the FBI later on when I got in, alcohol is part of the culture. It is. The FBI Academy still to this day, there's a bar, you know, in the FBI Academy. I'm sure there is down at Fletzy as well. It's not discouraged. I don't know that it's necessarily encouraged now these days. And I would like to think that I have an, an impact. I've had an impact on that. But certainly when I went through, it, it did. The National Academy, where I ended up teaching as an instructor, was known for drinking for quite a while. And, and in fairness, I contributed to that at the time when I was going through that program. But then later, when I came back as an instructor, we worked really hard to change that. I mean, I know that you had these predispositions, if we want to call it, but did you have any, any traumas that caused you to drink more? Because some people have the ability to drink alcohol, go to bed, wake up the next morning, perfectly fine. Guys like us, we can't do that, right? We don't have that ability to self-regulate. So were there things in your life that you were trying to mask, hide, bury, or was it just the stressors of the job? The team, the atmosphere, what do you think it was? I will tell you that for me, and, and I think mine's going to be a little bit different, you know, for a lot of people. It's going to be, it's going to be trauma, but it's not going to be what you think. And, and I don't believe it was related to the police department. It really began later in the FBI. Okay. And here's what I, here's what I mean by that. I get to the FBI and, and this is not meant to be anything against the FBI. It's just a very different type of law enforcement work than traditional policing. And when I got into the FBI, I think what happened was I was not real happy. I was not real happy with the, the work because I had just come off the streets. And so here I am in the, in the FBI, which is long-term investigation. Big difference, right? Can you explain the difference? If you don't mind, go into that just a yeah. tad so they, they can see that transition. Radical difference. And, and again, that, that's why I want to clarify that this is not meant to be anything against the FBI at all. It's just that if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about going into law enforcement, just know that it's, it's very, very different. If you are somebody that goes straight into the FBI off the street, that's your only experience with law enforcement, you're probably going to, hey, this is the greatest thing you've ever done. If you've done traditional police work, it's just different, okay? And you got to remember, I'm, in, I'm on the streets of DC making life and death decisions every single day. Very little supervision. Every day. And sometimes minute by minute. Yeah, I mean, like every day. And very little supervision. You're the man making the, or the woman, you know, if you're out there on the street. And I got used to that. And frankly, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed, I loved working the streets. Then you get to the FBI, you're in the office three quarters of the time, you know, writing reports. It's, it's just paperwork intensive and 
you could have one case assigned to you, and that's what you do for your entire career is investigate a handful of, of people for your whole career, you know? And I had just been a, a city cop. I was a bit too ADD for that. You know, I was, I just didn't like being locked in the office, writing reports and, and those types of things. And then the, the egos, you got to remember in the FBI, it's very, very hard to get the job. So everybody that you have there is incredibly intelligent. Everybody that you're working with is, all, there are no type BC personalities. Everybody's a type A. You're the weakling if you're type A. There's a lot of type AAA personalities. And so you put all those people into one room, put all of them into one room. Now you have them in the police department, but remember you were out working the street. We're in the same room. And when you're around those people, there's egos, there's people trying to, you learn, there's a, a lot of people that are more concerned about getting ahead and moving up in the organization than actually working as an agent. And I, and I just didn't like that. And I would say that without going into story after stories, I could probably write a book about some of the things that I've, that I've run into over the years in the FBI. But that was more my trauma. I was more traumaed by people that I thought were just trying to get ahead and would do so by trying to bring you down. That was more, believe it or not, that was more traumatic to me than the guys trying to kill me on the street. Because I expected that. I expected that on the street. You expected that on the street. But I didn't expect the guy in the office next to me to try to take me out. That's traumatic in a different way. And especially because of the brotherhood that we experienced in the police department. I don't know how it was in the FBI, but the brotherhood, you're with those guys every minute. That's your team. That's your squad. You brief with them. You go to bed with them. You wake up with them. I mean, that's what it feels like. You're living with these guys. And the moments that you get to go home and spend time with your family, other than that, you're at, you're at work. You do, you build that rapport. And that was one of the transitions that was hard for me is when I left, I, yeah. like, where'd it go? So when you get to the point where you don't necessarily trust the people you work with, which is what ultimately happened, you can understand how traumatic that would be. You don't necessarily, uh, you know, trust the people that you're working with. In fact, there's a, an agent that I work, a guy that sat right next to me is going to be on trial. His trial got moved back, um, supposed to be in March now, is facing, I believe, 60 plus years in prison for some fraud that, that he was committing. And, and I was calling him out back when I worked with him. We are both retired now, but now he's facing a trial. But, you know, I was calling this guy out years ago and, and now here he is, you know, facing, facing 60 plus years in prison. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, when you have that sitting next to you and you know that some of the stuff is going on and you're facing that every day, but your job is justice and um, doing the right thing. It, it really tore at me internally but that all goes back to the original question is what caused my drinking to really take off? A decade later, when I go back and I really assess what happened, to me, that's what caused it. That internal, just this conflict, internal conflict of, you know, I'm trying to be the good guy. We are all supposed to be the good guys. And here you are doing what you're doing. And I knew, and I had reported it. And then the, the organization didn't do anything about it. Didn't do anything about it. If I didn't ask you, my guess would be like, you, did you miss this moment? What is he on trial for? For committing fraud, defrauding some women out of money. So they take a guy like you who's struggling in the FBI and they said, hey, we're going to put you in charge of leading at-risk employees. Okay, so that was in the field office, right? So what had happened was later after it developed, and, and I won't go through all the details of how it progressed, but ultimately I ended up in, in treatment. And for alcohol and was going through the EAP program and was getting, you know, doing what I needed to do to get help. Number of relapses, you know, I was, the sobriety did not come easy to me. And I know a lot of listeners, it doesn't come easy to. Now, did you struggle at work with this, Michael, or was it all just kind of at home? 
Well, it was at home, but you know how that is. You know, I never drank at work. You know, it would just be now. I am sure that if you were around me in the morning, it would have been like, wow, you know, you could probably smell it on me. I was definitely not at a hundred percent. It had not progressed to the point where I was, you know, drinking at work. I think in time, well, because we know it progresses, we would have gotten there. But yeah, it was definitely affecting me. But I raised my hand, and and this is kind of a key point here was I had raised my hand. There was no disciplinary things involved with me. I raised my hand. And I want you to listen to this because this is what led to me creating the course. The impetus of the course that I created was how I perceived my case as being completely mishandled by the organization because I raised my hand to get help. Now, when you said you raised your hand, that means that you spoke up and said, hey, guys, listen, I'm please help. That's exactly right. I raised my hand and I said, hey, I have an alcohol problem. I want to get treatment. And so right off the bat, I think there were some people that meant well, I want to believe to this day that they meant well, but they completely, they didn't know what they were doing. So it was, okay, Mike goes off to treatment, so we're all going to support him. And my boss brings everybody in and tells them all that I'm in treatment, right? That was resentment number one, because, hey, that's private. <laughs> so that's resentment number one. And then when I came back, the organization then, you know, has you mandated to do any number of things. You're being monitored. You're they're watching over you. You're being threatened. And we're going to test you every day. And if you fail this test, we're going to fire you. We're going to pull your security clearance. So, Brock, if you had been parachuted into my situation in the middle of all this, you would ask yourself, man, what did you do? Did you kill somebody? What? They're threatening you all the time. They're like, no, I raised my hand to get help. Really? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. And I believe, Mike, your story is resonating with a lot of these listeners because we're scared to raise our hand because you're blackballed. Because people look at you and say, wait a minute, can I trust that guy to go through a door with me? He just told me that he's got an alcohol problem. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm the guy that said I have an issue, but yet now you're putting me on a list. Can they test me more? Yeah. And what is that to the other people that are struggling, that are thinking, hey, I want to get help? They, they see all what happened to you, and they're like, well, I'm not, I'm not doing that. There's no way. No. So- what happened was I eventually, you know, I go through my year of, of monitoring and the threats and the, all this kind of stuff. And eventually I end up over at the, so at the FBI Academy, you have new agents, analysts, instructors. I had started out as an instructor there teaching, interviewing, interrogation. Then I moved over to what's called the National Academy, which is for police executives. It's for chiefs of police, sheriffs, or people being groomed. The, your chief probably went through the National Academy. Very common. So I end up over there. And I was teaching a number of courses, and one of them was called uh, Officer-Involved Shootings. That was the name of the class, and I had inherited the class. And it was dealing with policies, programs, procedures for acute incidents, meaning you're involved in a shooting. It doesn't have to be a shooting. It could be anything, any traumatic incident. What kinds of programs should an agency have to take care of these officers, right? So I'm teaching it, but the one thing that I noticed about it was it was missing like the long term. So you get injured on the job. You're given Oxycontin, Hydrocodone, Percocets, things like that, right? And your addiction takes off. So your hero, who is involved in this incident, through medical conditions, given these, these prescribed these medicines, and now they're addicted to it, and now you're firing them or looking to fire them. Okay, or alcohol, of course, you know. And, and I had a number of chiefs of police that were asking about this, like, we're missing this. And I, and I would have these conversations. I wrote an article for the Law Enforcement Bulletin. It's out there. So if, if you Google Law Enforcement Bulletin, Van Meter, Leading At-Risk Employees, if you put that in there, it'll, it'll come up. Just a short little article that I wrote about it, talking about how we were missing the mark and we needed to do more. And what was happening, that same boss that I told you about that told all my 
uh, squad mates that I had been in treatment, we would have conversations and I would talk to her because she was my boss. And I, and I was talking to her about the feedback I was getting from the students. And finally, one day she said, you know, Mike, I've been learning a lot about you, about the addiction from you. I've learned a lot. Have you thought about maybe developing a course addressing the stuff that we're talking about? And that's what we did was, um, so officer involved shootings, I took the basis of that course, then moved it over and then created a new course through the University of Virginia called Leading at Risk Employees. It's still being taught there today. So if you were to go to the FBI National Academy today, that would be one of the courses that you could take. And we talk about addiction. So that was where it came from. I understand what you're doing, man. This is your vibe. This is what you teach. I love it. I I think it's amazing. I don't think it's taught enough. I think we're missing the boat. I know the agency that I was in, we dropped the ball. Uh, I just talked to a guy a minute ago on on another podcast, on his podcast, and that was one of the big things is that transition from the department out. Then now what? You take that uniform away, who are we? And so I guess what I want you to do is maybe give us some tools. What are you seeing that officers today are going through that you may be able to help them with? Yeah, so first of all, you need to know that there is definitely a predisposition towards addiction. You can look at your own family. You can look at your own life, and you can see that those markers are there. You, you can see it. I have not met anyone that has an addiction issue that does not have addiction somewhere else in their family line. Now, what do I mean by that? It may be... I'm going to raise my hand on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've never, not once, I've not, I've not met one person. Mental illness, yes. Addiction, didn't see it. But was it there? And mental illness was there, but addiction was not. So yes, it's there. It is definitely there. Because, you know, addiction, as you know, Brock, is a disease of the mind and the body. Addiction is a form of a mental illness. And before you say, oh, no, 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 I don't have a mental illness. Now, guys, it's, a, it's what I mean by mental illness. It's a illness of the mind. It's an illness of the brain. Because when you drink or you drug, a person that's wired normally through genetics your body is going to say, this is bad, and we're going to stop this, right? We all know those people that can have, my wife is one of those people. She can have two or three drinks, and she says, oh, I'm getting tingly. I don't like it. I'm going to stop, right? That means she's wired wired normally. Somebody like me, somebody like you, I have two or three drinks, and my body says, not only is this not bad, but it's good. That's wonderful. Let's go. Right? Yeah. And whatever that is, we need more of it. Because if you think about it, Alcohol is a toxin to every cell of your body. Your bo- it's a poison. Your body should not want alcohol at all. That's why you get tingly. That's why somebody with two or three or more drinks and they throw up, that's their body saying, we need to stop. We need to purge what we have and get rid of it because it's poison. But for somebody like me, my body says the exact opposite. This is good for survival. We need more. Well, how much? Well, we will keep going until it is out or you are out. Okay, that's a sign of an alcoholic. So in order to, for officers, you need to know that that's there, okay? You need to know that if you have that, that it's not going to go away. There are no exceptions to this. It's a progressive disease and it's deadly, progressive and deadly, and it progresses over a period of time. There are no exceptions and you are not the first exception. That's just not going to happen. Nice, I like that, man. What's something groundbreaking that you came up with through the FBI Academy? Like that you learned because of your own addiction. What I learned was that you can't give up on officers. I think that the course, when I developed it, it was not so much that it was groundbreaking, but I think it caused, or maybe it was, it was that we can't look at treating this through discipline. 
you don't beat people over the head with addiction. You have to, A, educate officers on what we're talking about right here, and that is that it is a disease. There's nothing wrong with you. This is not a moral issue. It is something that happens within your body. That kid that's allergic to peanuts or shellfish, or they didn't ask for that. You know, it's just, you don't ask for cancer, right? It is what it is. And officers experience this should not be punished. No, I'm not talking about, you know, if you got a DUI or domestic violence. There's behaviors that come out of, out of it. Guys that raise their hand and come and say, I need help. Exactly. Those people, you need to do what you can to help them. You need to not shame those people. You need to uh, provide the resources. You need, need to know what you're talking about. Because I never, I never, never, never felt like when I was going through what I was going through, that this was a team effort and people were trying to, to help me get well. All I remember for that year was, you do this, we're firing you. You do this, we're pulling your security clearance. And then furthermore, and the, the evidence of that was when I came off of my year of being monitored, Brock, let me ask you, how many times do you think I was ever called? Somebody pulled me in to say, hey, dude, how are you doing? Are you still sober? Uh, if so, how did you do it? Or if you relapsed, what happened? Or what can we do to help you get back on track? How many, how many of the conversations do you think I had? Zero. Zero. That is not indicative of a, an organization that cares about you, okay? And because I would think that, you know, 10 years of sobriety, right? It was as hard as it was for me to get sober. If I was able to finally get 10 years behind me or one year or whatever the case may be, don't you think, Grok, Brock, that you would want to know, hey, Mike, what did you do that all these other people are not doing? How did, what did you do to make it work? Without a doubt, brother, because you're, you're an anomaly, Absolutely. There's not a lot of people that are, that are surviving this. That's what we're trying to teach. So I think that's the groundbreaking thing. Now that I've said all that, I will give the FBI credit in that they did get behind me and support the course. They, it's still taught there to this day. So, you know, I will give them credit for that. I think that they're, uh, they're in a way, you have to understand, very big organization, very bureaucratic, a lot of moving parts. There's people coming and going. And, you know, Brock, we, we lead where we stand. You know, I'm proud of the fact that it's still there today. And I, and I hope that it helps a lot of people. So let's fast forward a little bit more, you know, to the podcast, because I mentioned I have my own podcast called Recovery is Possible. So where that came from was out of that class. So, you know, that being at the academy was towards the end of my FBI career. Eventually, I retire. The course has taken off other people. By the way, I interview some of the people that were instructors in that class after me. Guy named Art Nieves, for example, I interviewed him not long ago. When I left, I think he was the next instructor. That oh, and then Heidi Marshall, I interviewed her as well, and both of them taught the class after I left. Well, so I leave and I retire, and I, I leave the FBI. And but people are still calling me. You know, I've got chiefs of police and sheriffs, you know, from around the country calling me, asking me to come out and do training at their departments. Their you know, or just questions, you know, hey, I got a guy that we're going to do an intervention on, you know, can we run this by you? Tell us what you think. Or, you know, hey, is addiction really a disease or is that a bunch of crap? What do you think? All these different questions, right? But my wife could hear me on the phone and she'd hear me talking to these guys. And, and she says to me one day, you know, it sounds like you have the same conversation over and over and over every day. Why don't you record your answers to some of the most common questions and that way it's out there. Instead of explaining the disease model of addiction every day, you, you can just put it out there. And that was where that podcast started. And it's taken off. And well, I know I just got an email last night, actually, from a guy that is talking about how he is using that information and provided the podcast to his sister, who is, is suffering dearly from 
from alcoholism. And, and he said that his sister is getting a lot out of it. And I've had a number of other people have said that podcast has really educated them on the, the disease that they've had. So, you know, that's what we do, Brock. You know, people like you and I, we do what we do because we know that someone like this podcast right here, as you and I are talking, there's somebody listening to what we're saying and they can relate to everything that we're talking about. And the important thing is that they know that they can get well if they have the willingness to get well and are honest with themselves and are willing to do certain simple things. Like with alcoholism, you can get well. There's just certain things that you need to do. You can't drink. It starts with that. You can't drink, but you have to have that willingness. Now, there's a lot of other you know, but how do we not drink, right? This is like the most, think about this. Everything I do, everything you do is geared towards, everything I, I talk about is just geared towards you not picking up a drink and putting it in your mouth. Sounds so simple, right? But we're very complicated people. Absolute honor to have you on the show, man. I hope that we can connect and start doing some more things. I feel your vibe. I, I love what you're teaching. I love the fact that you're doing a podcast. Tell us what it is again. Give us the name. Yeah, it's called uh, Recovery is Possible. You, know, you can go on any of the podcast platforms. All of them have it. Or you can go to my website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. There's some other resources on there. My bio is on there, some other information. But you can go through the website to get to the podcast as well. Yeah, and that's Van Meter, V-A-N space M-E-T-E-R for all of you guys who, who can't see the screen right now. Oh, by the way, that's my last name, but on the website, it's all together. Just all Van Meter. It is spaced out, but it's vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com together. Awesome. Thank you, sir. You know what? More than anything, congratulations on your sobriety. Keep going. You know, they're like I'm saying, dude, we're dinosaurs. We're dinosaurs. And I appreciate that people can look up to you and say, hey, this guy can do it. I can do it. Yeah. You know, especially as meatheads, man. <laughs> you know, they, if we can do it, man, you can do it. It's just, it does take a little bit of resolve. Thank you for chasing the base. Thank you for being on the show. If you guys have any other information, I invite you to email us at chasingthevase at gmail.com. We'll talk to you guys soon. Till next time, we're out of here. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.